So your daughter thought she could pull one over on you technologically, eh? Yeah, I got in trouble for that, so maybe she's she might be winning right now. <laughs> you got in trouble for that? I got in trouble for Did that you, because... You snooped on her phone. Be, no, no, the snooping's not the issue. The making the public of the snooping. Oh, while, that's... While okay. this is the issue, it's the social media... Um, side of things so not, so not the snooping what did the snooping she, was highly approved of right what did she learn she learned that when it comes to a fight between her and me and not it's not even a fight it's right. just a kind of fun little thing i think it's fun i'm sure it's hysterical in every definition of the term for her um that she learned to go to her mother and her mother will give me crap for publishing private stuff on social media without the other person's permission which is a sore spot with her and rightfully so and what did you learn nothing oh. <laughs> so you're we're just gonna go through this again next time yeah <laughs> okay. i have to say my parenting and relationship and everything philosophy is that it's better to apologize than ask for permission <laughs> you weren't raised catholic were you no because that's 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 very much in the oh is it it yeah. is yeah no I, no but th see if i was raised catholic there'd be guilt there's no guilt. There's, no, there's no guilt <laughs> not even slightly welcome to wherever you are my name is ryan mcneil in toronto canada you're listening to episode 152 of the matinee cast it's the movie loving podcast on my movie loving website thematinee.ca your home for cinematic passion and perspective uh, that voice you just heard in the introduction um, has, has had a great hand in shaping this show, my own uh, cinematic appreciation, and, uh, you know, in some respects, my, my travel philosophy and my culinary philosophy over the last uh, almost, uh, I guess, seven or eight years since I met you now, um, and um, certainly my podcasting philosophy, so it's, it's always great to have him back on. It's been about a year or so since the last time you were here. Um, he is one of the voices on the Row 3 Cinecast. You can catch his writing at uh, twitch.com. Kurt Halfyard is back. How are you, man? Yeah, you're getting me in trouble, though. The, even this intro is like a little extra salt. They're the not They're gonna never going to listen. It. You're right. No, you're right. You know? You're right. You're absolutely right. It. You're right. <laughs> you know, but I did. I was like, you know, I, I got to go there. I saw yeah. that. And I was like, yeah, oh, yeah, this, yeah, is, yeah. this is fantastic. Um, my parents never would have known if, if that was me. That's, that's, that's the thing is... It's interesting to me to watch how parents and and children use the same avenues because there's lots of parents I know who that wouldn't have even been a blip. It 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 could metastasize into something worse in the sense that the more you uh, like play yeah. in the popular ones, the more you teach the people that get burned in that space to go further underground. So, there's that. Yeah, so, I know. I know. You know, it's. You but know, at this, you know, but at best least, intentions yeah, run to hell. Yeah, no, that's, it's it's crazy, and and you know, and still, they're not gonna they're not gonna listen to this, so that's okay. That is one hundred percent true. <laughs> On episode one hundred fifty two, we will be discussing Hail Caesar. It's got an exclamation point at the end, so I, should, I guess it should be Hail Caesar. Uh, flipping the record over to play the other side and learning even more about Kurt, which we'll do now in Know Your Enemy. Kurt first showed up on episode 48, where we talked about The Descendants. We learned the first film he'd ever seen was The Empire Strikes Back. The last film he'd seen at the time was Vertigo. The worst film he'd ever seen was Viking Massacre. The unseen classic or essential at the time was The Sound of Music. He'd seen it since, and the film he wished he made was Danny Boyle's Sunshine. He returned on episode 85 to talk about Star Trek Into Darkness, 
most of the movies you've talked about you've only been so-so on so i'm, I'm that's kind of what i'm going to be interested in today I, I don't think i've got you here for one you've unabashedly loved i like it a lot though. okay okay the movie he digs that everybody else hates is southland tales the movie everybody else likes that he does not is schindler's list speaking of salt in the wound you got you got your kicks at that one this week too. i did i was like i'm not thank gonna take you the bait. mr I'm not gonna kubrick take the bait. I'm not thank gonna you take the so bait. much the Look movie that makes him cry is catch me if you can in the movie of his life he's played by will wheaton and the film he was watching next was the great gatsby finally on episode 125 where we talked about Foxcatcher, we learned the film that made his love of movies turn a corner was The Untouchables. The first date movie was Consenting Adults. The sick day movie is without a clue. The movie that left him speechless was Manicamana. Manicamana? Manic you got it. Yeah. Okay. And his epitaph from Spaceballs was, fuck, even in the future nothing works. So we go to round four. And this is going to be an interesting one to start with because... I, I, you know, all these years in, I'm still not entirely certain how your mind works. Nobody. Yes, <laughs> nobody. <laughs> what is the film you really dig, but you never want to watch again? Uh, okay, I'm, I'm going to get all eclectic. And, and before people think, oh, who is this pretentious son of a bitch? Well, you can feel that way. But <laughs> these aren't. These are actual, um, I have eclectic taste. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go all weird. And I don't think it's terribly obscure, but it might not be a title that people are overly familiar with. And that's the Russian anti-war film, Come and See, which I only saw in the last maybe year. Okay. Um, Twitch Film ran a series on, like a blind spot series, not unlike your uh, your series on your website. Did they keep going with it? Because it no, felt like, it was, I was going to say, it did, felt like it died pretty quick. They did it for two years. They did oh, okay. one year of where we made our own list of films, and, right. and that's telling in and of itself. Yeah. The list is more telling than the writing about those films. Oh, sure, yeah. Because, you know, different people consider... Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Come and See was on my list. Then they did a one on directors. Okay. So, like, they picked a director, and then people would pick a title, yeah. whether it was very popular or a deep cut. Sure. And, and, and did that. So this was the first list. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's a very... Um, it's probably one of the biggest Russian films to cross over. Okay. Uh, is it Tarkovsky? No, it's... Because that's uh, where my brain goes when you say Russian It's in the mid-'80s. Um, it's a director named uh, Elam Klimov. I'm not sure what else he's done. He shoots the film a lot like uh, The Passion of Joan of Arc. It's okay. very faces-driven, right. and it's not a fun or exciting war movie. It is horrible all the time but it is beautifully framed and beautifully shot so it's that paradox of war films that you know they're inherently exciting but at the same you can't make an anti-war film is, is i guess the, thing. And the reason why you wouldn't want to watch it again is because it, like, it felt like a task or no not at all but it's it's, just... it's fabulous it's just heartbreaking to watch okay. it's deeply disturbing and heartbreaking to watch it's kind of like grave of the fireflies if you've seen the japanese yeah, yeah. animated film from around the same time okay uh like you just it's a lot to do with children and it's just devastating to watch it's gorgeously mounted though. i i can't say i've ever seen it but i guess i i kind of need to track it down now by the by the sounds of it um and it like it's it's kind of hard to hit that that spot for you because you've 
from what I know of you, you've kind of got a high threshold of places that you'll revisit with a film. If even if a film is like really really hard hitting, you're fine. You'll go back there. So so to really get into yeah. that area of something where you saw it once and you enjoyed it, but you're done. I have strong emotion. I weep all the time at the movies. <laughs> okay. I, I have strong emotional responses to the movies. Right. But that doesn't mean that I'm like I'm out mm-hmm. forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are a couple examples. This is one of them. Okay. Uh, what is the film that genuinely freaked you out? Uh, Michael Haneke's Time of the Wolf, which is early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, it's a post-apocalyptic movie, but instead of featuring kind of the excitement or whatever of reformation of society, you, you watch a woman lose her husband and then be on the verge of losing her children for the entire movie. In fact, she often loses them, and there are extended sequences of her trying to find them again right. uh, it, it's particularly a sequence around a barn which is shot at night okay. with only natural light it is and it, it just involves um, uh, I think it's Juliette Binoche uh, sounds about right um, screaming for one child while the barn that she left the other child catches on fire so what do you oh do my god <laughs> it's uh, um, yeah it's pretty heartrending. there's also a lot of animal killing and while I'm not that guy Kill, no. kill the dogs with the impunity. <laughs> I don't have a problem with it. But the way Henneke shoots things is uh, for maximum effect, particularly because he appreciates having a long sequence where nothing happens. Isabella Hubert, by the way. Oh, it's Isabella Hubert. Yeah. Say, you know, six yeah. of one. Both of those actresses <laughs> are often in the uh, Now, in why, why the, like, because again, you watch a lot of, you, wa- you watch a lot of freaky movies. Why was it this one that really, really affected you? I, I think it's the way it's shot. There's no there's no or very little soundtrack. Uh, okay. They're long sequences where he lets you kind of wallow in the fear and discomfort. Um, and the movie, of course, you're always on edge. Is it the parenting it. thing again? Or like getting back to kind of something we were touching on at the beginning of the show? I don't know, because when I watched that film, I was not a parent, yeah, parent. the okay. first time. So... Or maybe I was, actually. My son was born in March 2003, and I probably saw it in September 2003. So, yeah, maybe that's it. Do you find you're more affected by what's happening in a movie or how it, how we see it happen? Because like, you were saying how... The, the, how we the, see it happen. The disorientation of it was, what, was what really, really threw you. Because I, I came across this uh, two episodes ago. Uh, my brother sat where you are now and was talking about Son of Saul. And was talking about how what's deeply affecting about that movie because you know we've gone to the Holocaust so many times now. He goes, "What's happening so often in that movie is you're not going inside the gas chamber this time. You're standing right outside the door, and you're realizing, holy shit, that's worse." And I saw it since he and I talked about it, and, and to a large extent, he's right. Um, it's, it's that kind of thing where here's the thing: like I've seen. I, I, you know, as soon as I see these people going in and changing their clothes and being told to label them, I know exactly what's coming. And I'm like, oh, crap. And it is, you know, on its core level, horrifying. But seeing it portrayed that way where you're just hearing thump, thump, thump on the, on the door and the muffle of voices is much more affecting than actually going inside and watching them scream for some reason. So no, I think it's always that because your imagination is always more effective yeah. than than everything. And while Henneke doesn't leave a ton to your imagination in this film, he's definitely showing. Uh, but it's the way he... I find all of his films like that. I mean, he gets an unbelievable amount of mileage in cachet mm-hmm. from a single static shot outside, yeah. which uh, given 
taking the context away from it is nothing. That one, by the way, is Juliet Binoche. Right. Um, and yeah, he's he's just a very effective filmmaker. He gets under my skin, even though I ke- I will keep coming back. I've seen Time of the Wolf maybe five or six times. It's huh. a film I come back to all the well, time. Yeah, and, and maybe because it freaks me. Well, see, and I was gonna say that that's the cool answer is it freaked you out and yet you went back. You know? That's the story of my entire film going <laughs> career. Seeing Jaws on on VHS in the late seventies. Yeah, yeah. Um, as a five-year-old mm-hmm. uh, was what made me love horror movies to this day and I would argue even movies in general because that movie legitimately gave me nightmares as a child yeah yeah and yet I adore it to this day and that was why that's why I bring my children to movies that are often considered by many to be wholly inappropriate for children because that's my experience and it profoundly made me love the movies mm-hmm. is being emotionally affected at things I don't fully understand or can't fully grasp, and that's what it plants the seeds. Very cool, very cool. What is the movie that always makes you laugh? I would say Joe Dante's The Burbs. <laughs> of course um, you would. I, yes, of you course would. I would. Yes. If you if you listen to the Cinecast, it's it comes up often yes. on that show. I've if written, you talk to you for five minutes, it it's going to come up. It's going to be quoted. It's <laughs> going to come up. I've written about this movie extensively. I've been published. By writing about this movie, um, it's and yet, despite the fact that I've picked it apart almost frame by frame, and done everything with this, if I throw it on, it will make me laugh every time. It never gets old. Yeah. And my wife, who's very sneaky, uh, would if if she wanted to keep me in the house or whatever. She would go, let's watch The Burbs. And then we'd start watching The Burbs, and she'd be like, oh, I'm tired. I'm going to bed. And she would leave. And I'm like, well, I can't leave the movie. I have to stay and finish it. Um, so she, she, I don't know how many times she started that movie and then gone to bed. Um, That's so. awesome. Um, no, and it's, it's funny because that was just – that was for me, that was one of those movies for a long time. And, and i got to be honest, like hearing you guys bring it up, Repeatedly, I'm like, I, I, I just got to get to this now. Like, this is becoming a meme at a certain point. So, no, I think that that's you know, I've mentioned off the top of the show how uh, you and a lot of our other friends have shaped my my movie uh, appreciation. That's one of those ones that it would have just kind of fallen into you know into a corner had I not heard you mention it so often. I like, I'm the idiot who always just laughs at the the, the static zoom shot yeah. when when he's holding the bone. This is yeah. Walter. Ah! Yeah. You know, like that that for me is the one that always gets me. But I'm sure like there's plenty of the the thing with a lot of movies, certain directors is they're not terribly funny the first time you watch them. Oh yeah. But they become funny either through repetition or through nuance or 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 whatnot. Like Wes Anderson falls into that. The Coens, Coens. fall into that big time. Joe Dante definitely falls into that category. Fargo was on this week. I, I had like left the TV on a channel, gone to do groceries, come back with the TV still on, and Fargo had started. Mm-hmm. And it was the the scene where Marge interrogate or Marge interviews the two high school like high school right. dropouts. And and the I heard something that I, I actually hadn't heard before. I think probably because of the past, I was just laughing too hard. But when the one of them goes. You know, like a subconscious thing, and Marge goes, "Yeah, that can happen." They just—that's <laughs> the kind of thing you keep coming back yeah. to it. And little, little, little details because the certain type of filmmaker obsesses so much on the details. Yeah, uh, that I, I'm sure if you're working with them, it's got to be a pain in the ass. Oh yeah, but the movie stands. The movie's forever. You don't want to cut corners no, no. on something that's going to be around 
forever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what is your favorite movie soundtrack, sir? I listened to it on the way over to your oh, place okay. today. Uh, it's my standard car movie soundtrack. Uh, it has, there's no lyrics. It's the uh, Sympathy for Lady Vengeance soundtrack. It, okay. Uh, so uh, Park Chan-wook's capper to the Vengeance trilogy, which is actually the best of the the three, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, like, Old I I, Boy, I like Sympathy Mr. for Lady. The um, it's the quietest one. Yeah. Uh, this one has a Baroque classical score, uh, which I remember upon its American release, uh, I think it was the Weinstein Company mm -hmm. at the time who released it, uh, put the soundtrack out for free. I mean, it's all classical, so I'm sure most it's of the stuff's the in public domain, domain anyway. Uh, although they're all re recorded for the film mm -hmm. uh, they, and, and a lot of them have some of the characters in the film add a little bit of dialogue almost to, okay. the, to the thing but it is uh, lots of harpsichords and, and uh, piano and it's it's lovely and it's the most relaxing thing considering the content of the movie yeah. which can be pretty brutal yeah, yeah. Uh, the soundtrack itself is deeply relaxing to me anytime I'm in the car particularly in this goddamn city where you're <laughs> always stuck in traffic yes um, it is it is Better because you know you throw on rock and roll, you throw on the Dazed and Confused soundtrack when it's the open road, yeah, and yeah. You're, you're just driving. Right. But if you're like stuck in in construction, in, in the, exactly, yeah. you want something to to calm okay. the. Yeah. Are Are you a big like uh, original score guy? Like I like, am. Do you, you get a lot of them, and you kind of throw them on for. I like, am. Heck of it, uh, my favorite thing, in which I do every Halloween to my house is I put on Elliot Goldenthal's Alien 3 soundtrack, which is all, which is really weird. All the Alien soundtracks are weird, actually. Yeah. Um, and I listen to that all the time. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's choir and, and strange and disjointed and totally aharmonic. Yeah. It's lovely. Oh, man. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of funny because I, I find like, I got to listen to them end to end or not at all. You know, I can't just listen mm -hmm. to, like, one movement of a soundtrack or, like, one... I do have a mix of, like, you know, my favorite selections from various soundtracks. It's, like, 30 tracks long or so. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, I can't... Like, if I just leave my iPod on shuffle, I can't just add the one in the middle and then go on. I've got to, like, I kind of got to skip it. Well, speaking of Fargo, mm -hmm. the main titles for Fargo oh, sure. is something. Yeah. <laughs> that that's actually... Is... That's my favorite thing about the TV show is that they, they reference that main theme oh, okay. quite a bit. Uh, and you don't watch the TV show, right? I want to watch the TV show, but like everything, there's so much content yeah, out oh yeah, there yeah, yeah. that uh, it's 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 you're not opposed. Is I guess not at all. Okay, cool. Not cool. at all. Yeah, yeah. And last but not least, what is the movie you love that nobody has heard of? I don't know if nobody has heard of few this people. movie, but okay. I would say few people have heard of the uh, Chilean film from a couple years ago called Magic Magic, even though it has pretty recognizable. Uh, actors in I, it. I, you know what? The only reason why I know about it is because I've heard you talk that's about right. it. That's right. Okay, was, so tell it me was one of my about. favorite films of 2013. Okay. It stars Michael Sarah and Juno Temple. Um, and her name escapes me at the moment, but the lead from uh, Maria Full of Grace. Oh, Catalina. Oh, keep, keep talking. Yeah. I'll come up with it. Um, and it's a film about... Moreno? It sounds about right. Uh, Juno Temple in this film is a naive American who comes down to visit her friend, who's played by Emily Browning, an Australian actress, um, who's living in Chile at the time uh, with friends of hers, and they're going to go to like an island cottage. Okay. Uh, but when she arrives in Chile, um, 
her friend has to leave, go back and like do a school thing, and she leaves Juno Temple with three people she doesn't know, and the three of them uh, keep speaking in Spanish. Uh, like they they don't particularly care to indulge her, right? Um, or you know, and with her friend gone, she has no lifeline. She ends up at the cottage, and the friend just keeps texting saying, "I can't come back." And she's sort of stuck. She has no transport. She's on an island. And she just gets more freaked out as the movie goes. She starts hallucinating. Um, and the friends think, oh, whatever. She's just... And they just ignore her, essentially. Okay. It's, it, it, I've never seen the essence of being in a foreign country where you don't speak the language and you don't really have any control over you know, your own agency while you're there. Um, distilled into a better movie experience than Magic Magic. Hmm. It is it is impressive. And it it's one of many reasons why I'm a lifelong fan of Miss Juno Temple, who uh, I, I don't know how many people know her well. She pops up in small parts all over yeah, the place. Yeah, so I say, she tends to show up for like 60 seconds in a movie. She usually does a lot of damage plot-wise. Yeah. She is like, like she is the plot version of... Of a bull in a china shop. Yeah, she's Catwoman's lesbian lover in the she Dark Knight Rises. The, she's, she's the one I, I know. I'm pretty sure you hate it, but she's the one who who gets married in atonement to the to right. to, to one of the people. Yep. Uh, you know, in Killer Joe, she sets all the dominoes yep, in motion. she's the youngest girl in yeah, that. She's, yeah, she's uh, she's kind far, of like far from a, the matting crowd. She's uh, you know, but casting wise, she's like Chloe Sevigny in that she tends to never take mainstream movies and if she does show up in a mainstream movie it's for like 25 seconds yeah yeah she's it's it's kind of funny because she she's kind of she's the sort of actress that if she's in a movie i'm interested just automatically i mean okay it's like all right what is she gonna do in this i i'm a a slave i'm her slave to, to, to juno um, temple all right uh, I'll, I'll give it at least a little like i'll give it the old like 30 minute test it went least. straight to dvd i'll find it here and yeah, okay. it's uh, fabulous i'll track it down should have brought it with me you should have yeah you know if i had if i had to know uh, well there we go that's uh, that's more about kurt we'll uh, we'll learn more about him in round five whenever we get around to that and i think so far only one person's done those questions or two people have done those questions so far um, well, do we do like a saturday night live like the five timers club i like, should yeah i'll get like jackets or something yeah you know i'll give like a bottle of black label or something in a in a cardigan but for now we are going to go on to the first time ever that i'm doing a new release of the coen brothers on the matinee cast after a hundred and some odd episodes. It's Hail Caesar right after this. We are heading out to sea And however it'll be It ain't gonna be the same Cause no matter what we see When we're out there on the sea We ain't gonna see a dame Hail Caesar is written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. It stars George Clooney, Josh Brolin, Alden Ironreich, uh, Ray Fiennes, Scarlett Johansson, Tilda Swinton, Channing Tatum, and a cameo cast of thousands. Set in 1950s Hollywood, Hail Caesar follows Capitol Studios producer Eddie Maddox during one particularly trying day on the lot. As he is trying to complete production of his prestige epic, Hail Caesar, A Story of the Christ, his lead actor, Baird Whitlock, that's Clooney, is kidnapped by a group calling themselves the Future. 
As Manic tries to rescue his star from certain peril, he has to deal with rebranding his Western star, fending off twin gossip columnists, and a water belly star with an unexpected bun in the oven, and that's just for starters. In the hands of a lesser man, this might be a problem, but for someone as determined as Manic's, it's all in a day's work. Our friend Matthew Brown asked on Letterboxd, what's the emoji for the sound when something everybody seems to be getting a whole lot out of goes right over your head? Specifically, Brown brought up the idea of this era of Hollywood that's being referenced. Uh, he's, he has no interest in. Um, I do. Thanks in to the influence of people like Mariah Gates and our friend Jandy Hardesty and Titania Plant and others. But I found myself wondering if the play on the era works in the film's favor or if it's just a crutch. So, pop quiz hotshot. Is this movie helped or hurt by knowledge of all the movies that it's referencing? I I think it's helped. Okay. I, I It's weird because if this were any other director or directors uh, I would say that it's pandering but the Coen brothers don't know how to pander they they, they, they are unable to do so the way they're putting in all of these references because almost every film and almost every star in every film has a real world analog they're off center in all of them none of them are a straight know, up pole uh, yeah. exactly but I feel that there's a certain sense of, uh, while they are definitely going, oh, how clever and how well do you know this, they mix it up so much that it's not really a, like, I don't see people stroking beards and going, well, um, Esther Williams didn't have that kind of New York borough accent or something along those lines. So I, I am no expert of the period. Everybody keeps saying the movie's 1950s. I don't think... It is. I think it's like 1948, and I know that sounds like splitting hairs, but they, they, they do the bikini atoll uh, nuclear explosion or H bomb yeah, explosion, yeah, yeah. Okay. which he, which the Lockheed Martin character uh, says is like a secret. Yeah. Well. It wasn't a secret by the by time the 50s, the 50s came the only So I think I, it's like the late 40s. The only reason why I was thinking 50s is the timing of the Red Scare, because, you know, they're all communists. Yeah, but this um, is before that, right? They're making lists. They're not They're not. Yeah, prosecuting okay. people. And, and just the type of movies that they were they were doing. Like, you weren't really getting into the sand and sandal as epics in, in, like, the late 40s. That was, you know, fit, like, yeah, Ben-Hur ben -Hur was 59. I guess. Yeah, you're right. So it's, it, it, but it's... Uh, you're right. Like it's, some, it's somewhere. But is it somewhere or is it the robe? I, I, it's kind I, of both. Yeah, really. Yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's that movie. Like, yep. There's like ten of those. Yeah, yeah, there but, are. But, it, but it's it's one of but those for sure. Like stuff like Quo Vadis was earlier. Yeah, like, I, it's hard to say. They don't give you enough context to say that this sword and sandals picture that they're making, Hail Caesar, is like the first or mm. one of many. Right. Yeah. I. You know, it's it's crazy because. You know, a lot of these little references, like you know, even the drawing room film that they that they reference. That I don't know. I, I, don't, I, I don't have any. <laughs> I don't have any context. I, I, to I that. wouldn't like. I would, none of it. Like all of that. Like like Brown said, it would have sailed right past me. It, it, it's it's still not like landing. Like I think now it's grazing off my shoulders. But it's living proof that um, Ray Fine's character in the Grand Budapest Hotel was not in fact killed. He was secreted <laughs> out of. 
Eastern Europe and became a a fussy film director because, man, I feel this movie is actually referencing Wes Anderson films. Like, what is Fisher Stevens doing in this movie? Oh, my God. Um, Um, Okay, so, like, I take it you dug this movie. I dug it a lot. Okay, it, right, hugely. Now, you are like let, let's let's kind of let's let's kind of show our stripes here. You're a Coen Brothers fan because Absolutely. I know a lot of people are not. I am unabashedly okay. so. And you, along with liking their prestige pictures that everybody likes, like Fargo and you know No Country for Old Men and True Grit and those kind of things, you also like the off-tempo ones like Burn After Reading and. You know, uh, Lebowski started as Hudsucker Proxy. Hudsucker Proxy. Where do you come down on something like Lady Killers? Like I love Lady Killers. Really? I love, I love, love, love intolerable okay. cruelty. Wow. I, 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 okay. I don't understand why people this crap why on people Burn After Reading. Yeah. I, I'm not trolling at all. I just watched Burn After Reading before I came over here, and I'm like, why don't people like this movie more? Um, I, I, I don't know. I, and I feel Hail Caesar will be filed into that pile absolutely but that's where, wrong that is absolutely where it's that's going. wrong what's wrong what's wrong with uh you know just the they don't have to be uh apocalyptic all the time no no they don't i think you know what's kind of crazy about them is i actually feel that their offbeat movies would be incredible as a blind watch i really really do because i remember like because every one of them be it Lady Killers, or this one, or Burn After Reading, I remember seeing the trailer for the first time and laughing my ass off. And then yeah. by the time I got to see those jokes and moments in context, it didn't hit me as hard because, you know, I didn't find them as funny. To they must cut their own trailers. They must. They, they absolutely, must, because there's such a must. precision. Like, the A Serious Man trailer is a <laughs> genius-level yeah. trailer making. Yeah. And the Lawrence Lawrence, speaking of Ray Fiennes, the yeah. second trailer for Hail Caesar... Which is just the is would it just that, that it were so simple? Is that, would that but then they start cutting in the rest of the like, and you're like, how does this all fit together? Like, okay. it's, it's a brilliant little piece of trailer making. So that that's I'm, but it does spoil the shit out of the movie. <laughs> it does, and that's what I'm saying. Like, I if if I if you just handed that movie to me and said, watch this, I probably would have fallen like deeply, deeply in love. But even just the glimmer of those moments, that's why all Coen Brothers movies work. After they've been out for many years, okay, and you're you're distanced from their release yeah. and and what people thought of them, much like 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 we mentioned earlier, they benefit from rewatch. Now, if you watch something like Burn After Reading and The Lady Killers, and you're like, eh, wasn't my cup of tea. Never gonna revisit that again. Doing yourself a deep disservice. So go back deep to disservice. Oh, okay. And while I quite liked, nay loved, Hail Caesar, yeah. I expected to get better. When I have a chance to watch it again, I have many questions Such for Hail Caesar. Life. Like uh, Eddie Mannix, yeah. the, the principal character in the film, played by Josh Brolin, who does an amazing job in this movie. He's like he is he is by far one of my favorite things. About he this actually movie. breaks the entire Coen Brothers mold in the sense that all of the Coen Brothers films are about people that make one horrendous accident and then watch that accident ripple throughout okay. yeah, the yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He never makes a mistake. Over the course of the movie, no, no, he doesn't. Like when the movie ends, yeah, like you could argue, oh, well, there's an exception to that, and that is a serious man, where Michael Stuhlbarg is doing everything right and doing everything, but then he does, at the end of the film or right near the end, change the test score, yeah, and he's punished. And you could say, well, since God, whether it's Christian or Jewish, whatever, uh, 
sees time in both directions, he's punished. Maddox never does anything wrong from a from a what he does point of view. It's a weird thing. He sneaks some cigarettes. Every every other Coen Brothers movie <laughs> starts with some mistake. Some great like, sin. It, of it, some it can sort. be tiny, like um, we've been waiting. We've been waiting here for. Five hours. He's peed three times of, of Jerry Lundegaard fucking up his meeting time the mo- right from the first moment of the film. Right. Or it can be, um, I don't know, you just pick a film. They all start with a, a big mistake. Something like, like yeah. the, the Big Lebowski, of course, starts with the confusion between the two Lebowskis. Uh, uh, Hudsucker starts with the you know the, the, the CEO pitching himself. Absolutely. They, they've messed themselves up based on their stocks or whatever. They all start with that. And then the Coen brothers delight in the ripple effect yeah. of that going out. In this movie, Mannix, the main character, is fine. It's everyone around him that has made some sort of career uh, mistake, which actually puts him at odds. Usually, the Coen brothers love losers, yeah, and people in their films always lose. Yeah, except um, yeah, except okay. Whereas Mannix completely wins, uh, and that's strange. It's very strange in um, and of itself. It's you know, it, it's kind of crazy that. He is he is kind of the strangest Alice in Wonderland that I could think of because that that really when I thought about this movie it's it's kind of their their favorite narrative trick is to send one person through curiouser and curiouser situations because so much of this movie has so little to do with anything else that's going on yeah, yeah, yeah. the entire the entire plot with Scarlett Johansson has nothing to do with anything in this movie. Well, well, other than the fact that it's one of many thing fires that he has to put out, right? It's, but I mean, you like if they were told, I, and I would never tell the Coen brothers to excise something from their plot because that's how you lose something like Mike Yamagita. But it has nothing to do with anything. But at the meantime, in the meantime, he finds himself in the middle of it because it's one of his stars who has this problem, and I'm sure that was a producer's problem back in the fifties and forties. Keep in mind that Mike Yamagita from Fargo, which is. Uh, uh, that scene in the Radisson or whatever yeah, yeah. is the entire linchpin to Fargo. You can't remove that scene. That's the scene that causes Marge to second guess, which leads her back to Jerry Lundergaard a second time, which makes the whole movie work. There would be no Fargo without that scene. That is actually the most important scene oh, in the entire I, film. I, it's not a throwaway changing, at all. You're changing not a throwaway at all. But, or, um, you know, or, or just that, that's, or, or even just all of his, all of his dealings with Lockheed. You know, all of Mannix's meetings with Lockheed have nothing to do with so much. Well, but they also have to do with whether he stays. Does he become Jesus for the film industry and, like, take all of their sins onto his back? Like, there's a point in the movie where he's looking up at the three yes. crosses with the backdrop. It's a pretty major... Yeah, on, on a soundstage. Like, that, you know, I love the artifice of that. Yeah. You know, like, here's this very solemn moment, but you know that it's completely fake. Right, it's you know. just it's just yeah. lights and a painted sheet. Yeah. Yeah. However, that's his that's his whole thing. That's his whole thing with the confessional, which is are the bookends of, of the film. Does he stay and take all the sins of the Hollywood, you know, System. fools? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and shoulder that Christ-like, or does he, uh, you know, go over to the easy? Um, basically the devil yeah and and become lockheed martin who are going to go on to make all the military equipment and all the death and destruction equipment for the next 65 years for the for the u.s military industrial complex that i i feel that again the lockheed stuff is again i've only seen the film once so yeah, i don't and know and only just a few days i would ago, like yeah. to know and this is the thing that 
to loop all the way back to your original question, which I've gone way far afield. No, no, it's all right. Is I would like to know um, how much of the Lockheed, not the Lockheed, the communist plot oh. is in some way abetted or quasi-engineered by Mannix. It feels the final sequence with one of the Tilda Swintons. Um, <laughs> I do have to give the movie credit for multiple multiple Swintons. Multiple Swintons. Uh, she's not the first, though. There's, no, no. Uh, there's that clone movie she the made. The Technolust. I saw Technolust. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in the way he uses that as a bludgeon to keep the gossip columnist at bay is interesting, like at the end of the film. And I, I just don't know from watching it how much of a string puller, like how far Mannix's string pulling goes. It's it's crazy because a lot of the times he doesn't, like he doesn't have the physical presence of a man who's in complete control. Like you look at him when he's running away from one of the Swintons and he's got the the, the, the ransom money like tight. He's like, yeah. and she goes, what are we going to talk? He's like, mm-hmm, yeah, we're going to talk. Yeah, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's that kind of... He's not quite a bumbling fool like George Clooney is doing that the way that almost only George Clooney can do in this movie. Um, but he's also just not the ice cool, complete in control mogul. Yeah, but that would give that would the jig would be up if, if he, he was he used that. To in control. Then he's just a villain. You've got to uh, be. Okay. You've got to be a little jazzier, a little more go with the flow to be. Yeah. The it's hero it's strange, this. like you know. Um, Lindsay put it best when we were talking about this movie this afternoon. She said, I had a hard time following the puck in this movie. <laughs> and That's the Coen brothers' entire career, though. I mean, that's... Not they, like this. They start in the noir, and they, like... Okay, the first time you watch The Big Lebowski, that's a hard movie to follow. Which, it's funny. This is... The, that's got to be the one that we, we have to come back to the most with this movie, just because it's... You know, you got the kidnapping plot, and you've got the person going through and meeting weirder and weirder people. You've got Busby Berkeley musical numbers yeah. in both. Yeah, well, like, and that's the thing. I, 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 I must say, the one thing I, I took from this movie that I, that I really enjoy, I wish more movies stopped for a musical number. Yeah. Because, oh. uh, you know, we ain't going to see a dame. I, I had the biggest damn smile on my face during that entire number. Well, th- there's a brilliance in that sequence in how it just keeps escalating the gayness of that scene just keeps there, i feel there should be a little needle in the corner that's that's that, that just keeps drifting and drifting and drifting um yeah i i love that sequence and and the fact is none of the actual movies being made are critical to the no plot however the coen brothers do allow us to see what a late 40s early 50s era studio controlled picture or MGM picture because this all is all of them really like, uh, they, they, they give us the like the whole sequence with Scarlett Johansson the, the water that, ballet with the water ballet like you can go and look on YouTube and watch the you know Million Dollar Mermaid or whatever Esther Williams movie they're stealing from and you can see that sequence you yeah, can yeah. see the underwater shot mm-hmm. you can see the column of water you can see the dive off but then you watch like this is a Deacon's Coen's with full CGI and full everything and they were just not capable of getting the kind of color, like that sequence with the yellow and red bathing suits. Oh, yeah, they, they, keep, yeah uh, they keep flipping over. It's crazy. I don't know how much of that is real, and I don't know how much of that is CGI, but I don't care. This is the ultra Fantasia version of those things. Even, like, you know, no one would, Magic Mike and Magic Mike XXL aside, no one would dare confuse Channing Tatum with Gene Kelly. Like, that's almost... 
Tatum's almost blasphemous. Doing, I know However, Tatum's doing a, a really cool thing with his career. Like Tatum is very quick. Like I, for, when I first kind of came across him, I thought he was just another Hollywood meathead. Yeah. Right? Like I, I thought he was just going to be another one of these dummies who they trotted out into. Haywire. Yeah. That yeah. was the movie that convinced well, me. That that kind of thing. But like he's very very quickly turning himself into somebody very versatile. You know, like like he is. If if I was doing a song and dance movie right now, I'm casting Channing Tatum. Yeah. You know, there was a few years ago, like the the Oscars when Seth MacFarlane hosted them was a shit show. Uh, you know, no 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 two ways about it. But when it starts out with Channing Tatum and Charlize Theron dancing because she was trained as a ballerina, mm-hmm. you're like. That's right. These guys can do more right. than just you know look pretty, and that's that's movie, the crazy thing movie about genres don't play with as much width. It's weird because you think of the sort of controlling, you know, studio or whatever. But they they definitely had like their genres, but they were quite wide. Yeah, yeah. I feel the the movie studios now investing hundreds and hundreds of million dollars in in a mega franchise yeah, and in then a also buying like paranormal activities movies that cost almost nothing mm-hmm. and then eliminating the middle well for a long time you know examples like Ben-Hur and Cleopatra aside all of Hollywood was the middle yeah for a yeah. long time yeah and so you watch this If you, you'll notice though whether the movie's set in 1949 or 1951 or whatever uh, you'll notice one genre is missing and that's noir. Yeah, there's no, but well, because the movie is the structure yeah. of, of Hail Caesar has this kind of L.A. confidential. It, it's nothing like Curtis Hanson's movie no, no, at all. No. But uh, I might watch that later. But today, it still actually. has. <laughs> uh, it still has that. That's the period. Right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I, it's you know because the musical number in this made me think of. It made me think of like all the music in in. Um, in Lewin Davis, especially something like Please Mr. Kennedy, it made me think of that that Kenny Rogers number in the middle of uh, the, the Big Lebowski. Lebowski. I was like, they are they are great when they stop everything like dead in its tracks for yeah, a minute. They do that a lot. Yeah, Lewin Davis has like three or so- four songs, and yeah, they are complete. I, I, I kind of songs. wish they did that more. And and it's crazy because I'm I'm effusing about this movie, and I'm still saying. I don't know. I don't know. I think. I think if if somebody would ask me what I thought about this movie, I'd call it a beautiful mess. It's it's not. They are to use your phrase. They are deft at making Swiss watches. They are absolutely masters at making movies where everything fits together so damn beautifully. And I don't feel like that's this movie as much as I enjoyed it. I think it is. Really? I, I think you have to accept the mystery. <laughs> <laughs> Do I? Okay. Um, we haven't talked yet about uh, Alden Aaron. Yeah, he's clearly the because Holy everyone else is kind of a list. Well, there's he's that. the fresh face in the picture. Like, and yeah, he, he gets a lot of screen time. He does, which I, I dig that they they they're doing this again, where they pick somebody who's not really a name. Yeah, I looked him up, and if this I, were ten years ago, it'd be Leonardo DiCaprio playing that part, or twenty years ago. But I mean, even you know, even with Lewin Davis, they kind of did that with Oscar no, Isaac. No, Oscar Isaac. He'd been around for everything. a while. Like he he, he had everything. a long list. Yeah. But it like that might have just been good timing. That was kind yeah. of the turning point of his career. Like he'd really sure. caught on after that. Right. Like a lot of his stuff. But um, he, this guy, Alden is a he's a lovable cowpoke in mm-hmm. this movie. Watching him try to do that drawing room movie. Oh, they they stretch that wow. out deliciously. <laughs> you know, deliciously. That, that's the kind of thing that if, if he if he overplayed that 
or underplay that. I think that. he even, does overplay it, but doesn't. No, I think he's he overplaying gets, it and then over overplaying. You know, it. even just in the way he tries to walk into the room. And here's one of those Coen Brothers touches. I love that one of his shoes squeak. If you watch Hail Caesar, yeah. the movie is peppered with those movie imperfections. Um, is when there? Scarlett Johansson is going up on the big yeah. uh, the hoist? swing or hoist or whatever, she stumbles okay. a little bit. Um, I'm sure that. there's a mistake or two in the Channing Tatum dance number. They all have that. They're they're out of sync. I know that. And we were talking they, about how that's got to be deliberate. It's all deliberate. And they're, they're trying to, to say that... Um, you know these things are never perfectly done no. on stage, yes. and that you you can either technically yeah. get around them, or you can accept the fact that that mistake makes it more real, which a lot of filmmakers do. So is that take like, in that's a little so like him trying to open the door, like he's he's either like fighting with it or he's like clipping his shoulder yep. out of the way, like that kind of thing, or even as I said, like I love the shoe squeak, but what, yeah, just watching him, he's if he was any stiffer, we wouldn't believe it. You know what I mean? Like right. when he walks in and he's got that, he's, you can tell he's walking in a way he's not used to walking. He's, right. he's used to not nearly standing up that straight and, and kind of walking a little bit more bow-legged because he just got off a horse. Right. So watching him walk into that drawing room and, you know, come sit with me on the Duvant is just not his well, speed at all. And he sells it beautifully. I, get a lot, I think a lot of that joke, I get it, it's, it's shaded if you are aware of the Hollywood contract system yeah, that, yeah you know these actors all belong to this studio and they could they could take Humphrey Bogart out of you know playing these thugs in in these uh, gangster films and plant him I'm not gonna say Sabrina that's a little further along but they could plant him in um, Casablanca uh, where he's now the romantic lead or African queen yeah or African queen for sure um, but yeah like it just I, I don't know like I feel like watching Alden do his little like doing his rope tricks or something I feel like that might get old if he if he didn't sell it just right worst gag in the movie is by worst I mean best best uh, the uh, there's literally a spaghetti western in this movie <laughs> Uh, I had not thought of that until just now. <laughs> I'm sure they did. Oh, my, I'm, I'm sure, sure they did. did. Oh my god! No, this guy. I I, I love that. I love that the Coens do that. And you know, like as, as I said, as much as I had a hard time with this movie, every time it came back to him. I love that he's the guy who is sent in to try and, you know, solve this crime. Actually, he's not even sent in. He just happens to be the guy who solves this plot. Even though he's not a big picture guy, he's pretty astute. Like when he gives his speech of. You gotta watch the extras. I'm like, at first when I'm watching that, I'm thinking, why does this guy know these things or even think about yeah. these things? And then but he I brings guess, it, it's, yeah. it's it's absolute logic, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you like this movie, but is there something about it you thought did not work? There's no way that this thing was like a perfect movie for you. No, uh, it's hard for me to pinpoint one thing uh, that didn't work. I don't. I don't think there's anything specifically that I can think That's of. That's crazy, guys. I, you know, uh, I, I, I'm not used to talking so affectionately okay, about a movie. I, will. I don't see myself coming back. I will. Oh, I'm. I'll be all over this uh, movie uh, multiple times. I'll probably see it at least once more in the theater. Wow. Um, well, there's not much else there out there right now, anyway. So yeah, crazy. it's nice that they gave us a movie in February. Uh, I think the last time they did that was the Man Who Wasn't There, which also has Scarlett Johansson. In yeah, it. yeah. Um, and and the man who wasn't there makes a cameo in in this film. Does it? They they 
kidnap uh, Clooney in a dry cleaning truck, oh, which is the yeah, plot. Yeah, yeah, of, yeah, 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 of, there's yeah. so many. Like, I mean, if you're a Barton Fink fan, you're like, oh, we get to come yeah. back to the same studio were, were they 15 paying, years were they later. Were Jonah Hill in this movie by the minute? I don't know. Because, you know, for a guy who's on the poster, I thought he would have a way bigger part. I, maybe he did, and they 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 thought, oh no, it works better if he's in there in a smaller one moment. in a smaller capacity. I, I'd say the Francis McDormand scene, as much as I love it, is a little awkward. Um, I love the fact that they they, you know, kind of give a, a wet kiss to the moviola and the and the idea that back in that day, almost all the editors, and and I think to a large extent today as well, uh, editors tend to be women. It's less so now. Um, back in the day, it was because it was seen as it, they, they, they were they were kind of like a a second cousin to the seamstress, right? They, they, they exactly, are and he the shoots the moviola like a sewing machine. He does, he, and it's kind of funny because I turned I turned to Lindsay in that in that scene. I was like, "Is that what you do?" Um, and when yeah. and when we almost lost That's the right. editor, your in wife that is way. an editor. Yes, we, um, we almost lost the editor in that scene. Um, yeah, and maybe the wow. The, the, the sorry thing is a little broad. to cut you off. I am looking at the Wikipedia page for this film, and I just now noticed who the Soviet sub commander yeah, is. Yeah, Dolph Lundgren. I had no idea. Why not? Wow, that why is not? like, but and they don't, they don't even show his face. No, they don't. Why? Why would you do that? Why would you get him in there? I don't just, know. Just for that kind of. Cookie? I don't know, but that's funny. Sorry, yeah, um, editors. Sorry, yes. That's funny. Um, you know, like that, that kind of. So, so you were saying that that was the moment for you that was kind of extraneous. Well, I, I it wasn't extraneous because I love the fact that they acknowledged the the editor. I felt that the scene, it doesn't say, and, and the scene where, I, again, in theory, I like the scene where Mannix slaps the capitalism back into a <laughs> quasi-converted um, communist. Communist. Uh, <laughs> but I feel that the delivery of those lines is a little much. Not not. Brolin's fabulous. Oh yeah. I feel Clooney is. But then it's a weird thing with Clooney and the Coens. Much like in the '90s, where the Coen brothers just pick an actor and torture them in weird meta ways across their filmography. Like Steve Buscemi is killed in every. Coen Brothers movies yet, but his remains get smaller right. in every single movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, in Clooney from the 2000s on, when they started casting him in things like Oh Brother, he just gets dumber every movie. He's dumber every movie. There's a funny quote, I'll wreck it, but you should find it on the internet, of the Coens and Clooney promoting probably Burn After Reading or something, and he's like, I don't know if I'll ever work um, with the Coen Brothers again. Uh, you know, unless they give me a, sm a brighter character because I feel I'm getting dumber in every movie and, uh, and I don't want to continue to get dumber. And then one of the brothers says, you will if you want to keep working with us. So they're fully <laughs> conscious of that. But I feel that there's something a little off by that. And unlike like the Lebowski movie where you're watching a person go through all of this thing, like a noir detective. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel there's enough with all the other characters because he has uh, Donnie and Walter to be with him mm -hmm. that you feel like it is a, a journey of people. But because Mannix is so solo through this movie, um, you it doesn't build all of the other characters. You, you almost they want, really you want him feel... to have somebody with him to go, you're seeing this too, right? Yeah, and they cast Alison Pill as his wife, an actress who I... <laughs> 
quite like. Um, I feel and they like give her one scene, and, and they they so they good. must be at a point where, you know, the the word goes out that they're doing something, and everybody just volunteers their services. Because even Dolph Lundgren. Even Dolph Lundgren, but I mean, like the you know the entire room full of screenwriters who make up the future. Yeah. First got, of all, it's you a got the guy from uh, Winkies in yeah, it, uh, it, in Mulholland Drive. I don't a, know it, that guy yeah, is, but it's it's a who's who of their mm. character actors. Yep. You know, for starters, it's just a who's who. Uh, it's, it's it is just a crazy collection of faces in that guys that it's it's just that room and then the boat right and, and that that's all they have to do some of them don't really have lines one guy just gets continually told to shut up yep you know, it, that, that's I, I gotta feel like yep. that's where they're that's at. the bowling alley scene redone by the way well yeah i know i feel oh, that I know, yeah. that in in uh so hail caesar is ultimately about um cy abelman is cutting the the yeah, he's, he's 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 yeah. one of the commies there as yeah. well. But I f- was it Fred Melamed? Is that the actor's yeah, name? Yeah, I think so. Um, I feel that not only are they taking the piss or demythologizing nineteen post war early fifties yeah. uh, Hollywood by showing you know the magic because all of the films within the films are amazing. Yeah, that yeah. they shoot, but then they show the social mess that is on the other side of the camera. Not only are they doing that, they are making fun. They're, they're lumping themselves in. You think that, and a lot of people that I've read uh, on this film feel that, well, the Coen brothers, you know, they've only been really made one Hollywood movie, um, and that's Hudsucker Proxy. Everything else has been relatively indie. Um, yeah, okay. And, you know, studios distribute their films, but yeah. they don't, like, say, we're going to make a Coen brothers movie. No, right? no. They, they make the they movies make them under their own yeah. working title imprint, and then they, they go back. I feel that they're also mocking themselves. They're 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 killing their own sacred cows as well because there are Easter eggs, and I find this utterly obnoxious in the in the superhero movies. Okay, um, and the pandering and the little. But you know, you're okay with things. it here. But here, because um, because they're it's mocking your, because it. it's they're your mocking brand. It. That's not fair. No, it's not. It's not that at all. It's okay. totally not that because when they do it, it's a negative. When other people do it, it's a let's make you feel smart. When they do it, they're they're being self-deprecating and taking the piss out of themselves. When Marvel does it, they're saying, "Look at how smart you are for having read all of our stuff that you know this." That's a totally different angle. I I, I think that just as much you're look at how smart you are for having seen these other movies and being able to recognize half the faces in this room full of communists. Because you know, for for the most part, there you know, you know that it's funny if it you know that it's the club owner from Lewin Davis, and you know it's Cy Abelman, and you know, and on and on and on down the line, and hey, you know that that's Newman, who's the who's the uh, which I thought who's... was funny. Funny you should mention that because I thought that was Stephen Root when I watched the movie, and really? I was with a buddy because Stephen Root's in a lot of their pictures, right? Yeah, yeah. And and and, and, and he Wayne goes, Knight that was Newman, and I'm not. like, no, I'm pretty sure it was Stephen Root because he's in like everything, a lot of their films. Yeah, and uh, nope, it was Wayne Knight. Well, um, we, we end our conversations about a film here on the Matinee Cast with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible. If you could, you would take away from the movie and keep. Uh, Kurt Hatfield, what is your souvenir from Hail Caesar? To finish my point. Sure. And I think it, it, of the, the Coens making fun of themselves, okay. the final shot of the film is a crane shot outside of the studio lot with Behold written on the water tower. Right. Um, and then... The thing kind of fades to white in a CGI right into the Coen Brothers' names, which is totally going. Yeah, we made a 
we made a big, silly, inconsequential movie that'll make you laugh. So you and want that's that, what they're, that that's what they're taking the piss out of okay. Hollywood, but they're taking the piss out of okay. themselves, too. I am taking a tangible item this time, um, just because we see it so often, and it is something I use, and I'm noticing more and more people do not. I want Eddie Maddox's watch. Because Eddie, oh, Eddie looks at his watch like constantly. Yeah, and it and it's always like one minute to the hour. To something, yeah, and that, that's the thing. It has hands, right? Like, yeah. and, that, and that's the thing. I'm noticing more and more people either don't wear them, or if they do wear them, they're like, you know, they, they wear the, the wearable tech. I'm like, no, no, no. I like ones that are hands and a face and that kind of thing. And, and he has a really good watch. So that would be my takeaway. Uh, we rate here. I know you don't like rating, but you're gonna. Uh, we rate here on the matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars. Kurt Halfyard, what do you give? Hail Caesar. Oh, you can it. use halves. Is that a four? I'll give it three and a half. Three and a half. Okay. Um, I think you've talked me up to a three. I don't. I don't like to rate movies. Yeah, I know. So I know you don't. Really, no, I know. I know this you really caused me pain. I don't <laughs> like to rate them. I don't like to rank them. I know. I know. Um, I think you talked me up to a three. This was going to be a two and a half because I, like I said, I thought this was a beautiful mess. But I'm the more I talk about it, the more I'm realizing I liked being in the mess. And not to throw your thing back at you. Sure. Watch it again. I, I, and I, you know what? I, I might. I, I might very well. I, I, I thought for a while, because a lot of the, a lot of their movies that I'm only so-so on, like Burn After Reading and Intolerable Cruelty and Lady Killers, I only saw them the once and threw them in the pile. Yeah. So maybe that's it. Maybe if I come back to it again, it'll grow more and more and more. Hey, listen, like I said off the top, I am a fan of the era that this movie is mocking. You know, like not just the movies like... Mm-hmm. Uh, the ones we're going to talk about in a second, but also stuff like you said, like um, LA Confidential. So at the very least, this is a stylish movie that I could spend more time with. So, hey, listen, maybe we're both crazy. Maybe you think that this movie is a masterpiece because there are some people who think that. Maybe you think that this movie is an absolute bomb. Let me know. Ryan at the matinee, Twitter, where I'm matinee underscore CA, or Facebook.com slash dark matinee. We are going to do a protracted version of The Other Side, but come on back. We're going to flip this record over and talk about some more movies right after this. We're back. I'm Ryan McNeil. This is Kurt Hathiard. We were just talking about <laughs> Hail Caesar. And ordinarily, we each pick one movie to talk about. Um, for various reasons, we didn't go with one movie each uh, this time around. Um, but I think that's good because I think a movie like this actually leads you to kind of a scattershot approach coming away. It's a Quentin Tarantino up... movie in the sense that if you're not overly familiar with the period, you, as you said off the top, maybe you don't get as much out of the movie. Mm-hmm. But it's a lovely little gateway mm-hmm. if you're like, wow, I really liked that sailor sequence. Maybe I want to go and watch On the Town or Anchors Away or whatever the MGM Gene Kelly movies yeah, yeah. that are being spoofed there. Maybe I will because you know in a week or so the Wikipedia page for or the IMDb page – for Hail Caesar will have all of the those connections yeah, yeah. laid out for you um, because there are a lot of people that that the 1950s or, or that post-war period is like their favorite golden age of of the movies yeah. when Technicolor and widescreen were starting to come in and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, movies had to compete with TV. Well, and like... And everything in that, it's, it's, it's crazy because on the one hand, it's a, it's a plus. On the other hand, it's a minus. Like everything out of that era was just double barrel. You know, they, they didn't, they, don't get me wrong. There was a lot of, there was a lot of shit 
in that area. Anytime people try to tell me, oh, there's a lot of the stuff that's coming out now is just real crap. And it feels like there's just yeah, more and more crap. Because we haven't here. had a chance to filter it away. Well, that's, yeah. that's what I say. I was yeah. like, you know, there was a, there's always been crap. The difference is the crap from the past has just disappeared. Mm. And you don't, you know, like, they're, they're still, they're making more movies now just because they're cheaper and they can. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're all crap. But a lot of those, a lot of the movies of that era, because they were competing with television, they went, like, just full bore at them and said this is going to be a show the, the the greatest story ever told won won the oscar of that yeah, year yeah well okay and so, it's literally bread and circuses yeah, <laughs> yeah. which i oh my god i can't stand that movie have you seen that i've movie? never seen it oh don't do it if I've you like parades it. you're in for a good movie i do like in all fairness much later and a much bigger money loser was uh, was cleopatra the i see the, i'm more curious about that, cleopatra that sequence where she comes in yeah, yeah. is like a parade right and it's got to be especially if you watch the road show like super extended version of cleopatra that sequence must be 20 minutes long yeah and it's just spectacle for 20 minutes did and you maybe see, you saw the ro- you saw the road show version of uh hateful eight right i did and how'd you dig that with like having a having a an overture and having an intermission oh i love it yeah. I, I love it to death i i i still think hateful eight is quentin tarantino's worst film i'm with you but i loved the the experience of watching it, mm. and I and I still think it's a good film. Mm. It's just the fact that it's uh, it just didn't fully work for me. But while I was yeah. watching it for the first time, like when I step back and go, okay, where does this fit, and yeah. what is he doing, and how does it fit into his filmography, it's not terribly exciting to me. But when I was watching it, the mystery, the yeah, yeah. and the overture, and I thought the intermission was beautifully placed. Yeah, I, and, I had a good experience. Else, I haven't actually gone back, and I will. It's playing at the Royal uh, this week. Um, I will go and watch the normal version okay. of the film, which I never because I was rather unenthused upon reflection yeah, yeah. about Hateful Eight that I'm like, do I need to do a double dip? Yeah, of this you, one you, in the cinema. Uh, you know, you weren't at the last bar night. There was a very long argument about that movie. Um, Some people really love it. Oh, so I know. I'm not going to sit here and, yeah, uh, I and and knock it down a peg. <laughs> I, I, I enjoyed the movie a lot, but I I don't. I also think it. You know, so you. You gotta have a worst film if you're gonna play yeah. the ranking game. Yeah. You gotta have the worst. Yeah. This is that. Um, was there one film more than any that you came away from Hail Caesar thinking about uh, that you know that, that was kind of like where you would have gone for first? I, but the way we've been talking, I kind of almost think that it's Burn After Reading. Well, well I did you? literally go to Burn After Reading. Right. It was the next film yeah. I watched yeah, yeah. after that, partly because I just love Burn After Reading. But no, the film that I would uh, you know flip it over and play the other side. For me, unquestionably, is Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole, which is also oh, attacking, really? attacking okay, okay. that keep us entertained. We need the circus. We need these things. And yet there is this dark, disgusting, Very underbelly. Very cynical. Okay. As savage and violent as the Coen brothers often can be, uh, it's pretty hard to mess with uh, just how acidic wilder can be when he's in that mode which yeah. is a good chunk of the time yeah, yeah. um and yeah it's also ace in the hole is my favorite uh billy wilder picture okay and uh yeah that, that's, that's tell people like, and it's of the era so oh yeah, yeah it's 51, so yeah. it's it feels like that's the i worry that people might not have seen it tell people what this movie is about because I, I i'm with you this, this, this is an amazing movie uh, yeah, and, and it, you know, people like Sunset Boulevard and The Apartment, the apartment and, 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 and Some uh, Like It Hot. Some Like It Hot. I mean, like, those are um, 
those are the bigger they're the, they're they're the films, they're, right? They're the gateway ones. Um, Ace in the Hole is a, a newspaper movie, um, and Kirk Douglas is like a he's the lead. He is a disgraced big city reporter that his car breaks down when he's I don't know if he's going from New York to LA or whatever, but he he goes into this smoky little town and looks to get it's a Albuquerque. job. It's Albuquerque, New is Mexico. It Albuquerque? Yeah, okay. but it, but it's before but it's Albuquerque, Albuquerque in 1951. Really, yeah, right? which is not um, yeah, it's not exactly cosmopolitan. And he just happens while he's getting his car fixed to land on the story of his life. But it's not necessarily the story of his life. He actually starts to manipulate it to make it his big comeback to say, screw you, coastal mega newspapers. I can be in the middle of nowhere yeah. and I can, I can make the biggest national story work. And this is my, this is my big F you. And it, it, it's actually the thing that, while we're on Burn After Reading, it's the thing that uh, John Malkovich envisions that his CIA memoirs would be. <laughs> it's be. And he has kind of these scenes where he's, you know, he feels he's, feeling what the glory could be, but it's of course he's, it's burn he's, after reading. Yeah, so burn after, works like, I feel like Malkovich in that movie is thinking that he's Edward Snowden. Yeah, you know, in, in a, he feels a way. like, like he's I'm gonna blow this thing wide. Out open. of spite, though, Snowden didn't do it out of spite. No, Snowden my, did it out of conscience. Yeah, my memoir, um, my <laughs> memoir, yeah, exactly. Um, but he's, anyway, yeah. he's in the hole. I feel like would make a great double feature with Spotlight. Yeah, you know, it's like you know, here's how we should do it. Here's how we could do it. I feel that they've that Hollywood, not Hollywood, people, yeah, directors have been remaking Ace in the, the hole. hole over and over again. But because people, like people know Bonnie and Clyde, right? So yeah. when you see a Natural Born Killers or a Getaway or whatever, you go, oh yeah, that's kind of like Bonnie and Clyde. Like so, you you, you kind of get the the fact that that you know very narrow band can be replicated many times. But if you watch something like uh, Get Low. With mm-hmm. Bill Murray and uh, is it Robert Duvall? Robert Duvall. Uh, that's a, essentially it's a lightweight remake. Every remake of Ace in the Hole is a lightweight yeah. remake. It's like trying to remake 2001: A Space Odyssey. As good as your movie is, it's not going to be 2001: A Space Odyssey. Um, the first movie I thought of, it, it's the easy pull, just because it's kind of all over Hail Caesar. But it, but it's one that it's got like meaning for me. The first one I went to is Ben Hur. Um, which, first of all, like, which is essentially what they're making. A, yeah, yeah, because the movie, they, they, yeah, they take the you know they, they they take the Christian story and they graft it onto the larger Roman epic, and they you know they kind of get the marriage of the two things. I also kind of going back to Hail Caesar. I love that they actually get the priest and the rabbi into the room. Oh, we never even mentioned oh, that sequence. Oh my god, that I, is so good. I lost it. I, I, that, I think that, that sequence is so good. They, yeah. You know, they get they get the reverend, the priest, the 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 the, or, the, cat, the orthodox, the orthodox and the rabbi, and the rabbi yeah. all into the room. It's like, it sounds like a setup for a really bad joke. Yeah, but it, it just. <laughs> It goes to show you, which the Coen brothers are fully aware, in that everyone's a goddamn critic. Yeah. And so you bring these guys in to consult on what Jesus is. Yeah. How, how does this movie affect you in a theological perspective? Well, the scene where he jumped from one chariot to yeah, the other, that's totally, totally unbelievable. Totally fake. Um, yeah, yeah, they can't stay on topic, except for Robert Picardo, who's the Jew. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's a complete apology for how bad he portrays rabbis in a serious man he makes robert picardo the coolest cat in the room (laughs) he's just sitting there he's not indulging and and he's like "Eh," you know whatever anyway and i feel like that he makes he makes the rabbi the rock star rabbi what'd you think yeah it could be worse yeah yeah (laughs) and and if you think about it that sequence uh where he's asking um 
how is Jesus portrayed effectively those dovetail with his Catholic confessions and his Lockheed Martin sure. interviews to, to have this guy questioning you know what he is considering that you know he's kind of you know he's the martyr it's, in a way it, it's kind of crazy because Ben-Hur I almost don't feel like Ben-Hur could be made anymore beyond the fact that it was they are remaking it right now I know they are <laughs> but I mean I mean okay like this movie was ridiculously expensive it did win Best Picture, so you know it paid off in the end, and, it, and it's had a, it's had a great um, it, it's had a great reputation that's followed it through sixty years now, basically. But I feel like if you went to a studio now and said, "We want you to give us an ungodly sum of money to create this gigantic spectacle that is all you know around a Christian allegory and is going to be all about you know that," they're going to be like, "No." Well, no, they would. That would be the Passion of the Christ, and he but had to self-finance that. That's what I'm saying. You, you, <laughs> he, you, the studio yeah, said, "There is a, no way." Oh yeah, no. There, there is a gigantic industry of, of very Christian movies that are, that are being made, but they're being made in a self-industry. That's the internet, though. The internet cre- has created a hall of echo chambers and now like the movies are made in that echo chamber yeah format. but like so, that, so it's kind of crazy Christian to me that decided. at one time you know that, that mgm said yeah sure here you go here's your money did go, you ever see go the... build your arena in 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 italy go build your arena put thousands of people in it and stage your little horse race right that's insane to it me. is crazy well spartacus is another same thing uh, yeah. like the, the cast the the amount of extras yeah, yeah. in those sequences and these are long Kubrick tracking shots yeah. with all of these extras in them. Did you ever see that uh, the, the the last big attempt at a big expensive biblical optic was the one that starred uh, Oscar Isaac? It was like what was it called Agora? The, no, not Agora. Although that is amazing, and, <laughs> yeah. and I feel that could have fit into the magic magic role uh, of a movie that I love that no one's ever heard of. That movie is oh no, genius. I love I love that movie. But no, it was called something like. The greatest story, or something, okay. or the the Bible, no, or, or I, whatever. I, it was I, a it was a biblical movie, right? That was financed by one of these like cloud ten biblical I, pictures. Not the, not the nativity um, story, was it? Nativity story. That's it. That's okay. the one. No, I. He's didn't, the lead, right? Is, yeah, he's in it. Yeah, with Keith, Keisha Castle Hughes. Yeah, um, Catherine Hardwick directed that movie. Um, she of former uh, production designer and uh, Thirteen and yeah, Twilight yeah, One. Yeah. Um, she was the production designer Kieran on... Kieran Hines is in that movie. She was the production designer on Point Break. Oh, my the, goodness. Uh, the, I think she was... Uh, what's her name? Who's uh, Catherine Bigelow's production designer? Like, Blue Steel, wow. Point okay. Break, okay. whatever. Um, I no, like I, I did. I, I no interest in that Nativity movie. Though. Movie was, the Nativity story was one of those ones that was trying to play off the success of, of Passion of the Christ. But back to the, the reason why Ben-Hur comes up is for me, that was my entry into classic film. When I was like 12, 11 or 12, we, I was shown that by a teacher. Mm. And that was the first thing. Like that, throw The Wizard of Oz out because I think that that movie's in a, you know, it's a category all its own. That was the first classic film I'd ever seen. So the first thing where they weren't speaking in my rhythm, the first thing where I think that was probably also the first widescreen movie I'd ever seen. I was like, where's, what's going on at the top and bottom of the screen? Right, 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 because right. you can't show... Even on even if you got a pan and scan, yeah, you couldn't. You couldn't, you show couldn't the, pan fast. Enough. No, no. Yeah. So that one and and yeah and and just that you go through this whole Roman epic adventure of swords and sandals and marches and chariots, just to get to the Christian allegory at the end, is is I th- I think that's a wild trip and I can't believe that for a long time Hollywood just kept going there. Another good one to pair with this movie sure. would be the Grand Budapest Hotel. Not because, I watched that not today. because it shares a lot of cast, but if you watch 
hail Caesar closely, there's a constant changing of aspect ratios in the film because they're watching, you know, they're watching dailies, dailies. and this and yeah. and the way they keep moving. And then when they uh, when Hobie and and the the Latino girl go to the movies and they're watching his movie, and you you get this constant. It feels it's more diegetic than. Um, Grand Budapest. Than Grand Budapest, where it's completely imposed on and it's, that film. It's, it's less, it's less clever than Mommy, for instance, too. When Mommy has the that's moment a thing of now. Apparently, out. the 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 aspect ratio is like what it feels to some extent. What the digital intermediate, where we're going to recolorize a whole movie digitally. I feel there's a lot of directors playing with aspect ratios right now and uh, changing them mid film. Oh, okay. Or like that one. Is it an Iranian film where it's a circle? What the, the, the movie? Ha, the movie has like I don't know what you'd call that. It's not letterboxing or pillarboxing. Uh, the movie uh, is actually uh, a vignetting, circle. basically. That, that's, yeah, that's but it's ir- a hard, ir- it's hard iris. Yeah, really? Yeah. So I gotta find a, that. That sounds fascinating. There's a and I and I feel I'm giving this idea away. I don't know if it's a very good one. That's why I'm giving it away. But I feel there's going to be some filmmaker that now has like emotions or emoticons in the framing like during the love scene it'll be framed with a heart or during something power huh. scene the, the 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 matting will be a star or okay. something and okay. you'll have a whole movie where the actual emotion is being dictated to you in the same way a bad music score yeah, will yeah. overwhelm the movie by yeah. saying this is how you feel i feel that some filmmaker will play by farting around with the aspect ratio for every scene of the movie the same way the Coen brothers did in Oh Brother Where Art Thou which is widely considered the first movie that was color corrected digitally for the entire runtime of the film Okay, which of course they did again with black and white and, yeah, yeah. and Man Who Wasn't There. Was there another film that jumped to, brain, jumped to your mind after I'm sure there were several but there was another one that you want to talk about that came to mind after Hail Caesar? I don't think so. I, I think that there's like all the movies inside the movies. If yeah, you're, that, that if you're inclined to stuff to like do on that, the town and all those Esther Williams movies. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. The one that actually jumped to my brain as as much as I'm messy on this film, I feel like it did it better than this movie. Is did you go see Trumbo? No, I no, feel like I this movie does the Trumbo era better than Trumbo. Well, because Trumbo's doing exactly what. Capital Pictures inside of Hail Caesar. It's trying to give you this moral lesson and talk down. The Coen brothers, the one thing they're never guilty of, no matter how silly or lowbrow the gags will be, like the caca every time every they, time bring, they up, bring up yeah, they bring on up the wings of the, eagles. The, 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 the sodomy picture yeah, yeah. Uh, in the film. <laughs> um, the Coen brothers never talk down to you, but I feel like the middle brow Oscar bait film, the Danish girls and the king speeches. And and whatever of this world, mm-hmm. uh, they they overdo it. They over solemnize. The Coen brothers are never solemn. They're sure. never solemn, um, and that makes for a better movie because there's more respect to the audience and then beating you over the head with it. And while I've not seen Trumbo, so uh, I can't Trumbo overly comment is, about it. Trumbo but. at least is worth it to watch Brian Cranston, and I, and there is there is a great moment late in the film where where Trumbo is working on first he starts working on Spartacus and then he starts working on something for Otto Preminger and the guy they get to play Preminger just brings so much oxygen into that movie because that's that's the thing that that really drives that movie crazy is you've got all these actors playing other actors so you've got Stuhlbarg playing Edward G. Robinson 
That's, no, a, that's a win. That in my not mind really. it is not no, it really. Work. You would think, but not so much. And I don't know who the guy is who's playing John Wayne, but he's playing John Wayne, right? Right. And, and just you find yourself constantly just completely distracted. And then they get this nobody in there to play Otto Preminger, and he's fantastic. And he just you know he shows up on on Trumbull's doors. Hello, I am Otto Preminger. You are going to make my movie with me. And you know he even actually says that Christmas is over. Time to go back to work. And that's the moment where the movie kind of lifts, and it's late in the movie too. Christian Burkell. Yes, and he's and he's fantastic in the movie. This I, that was the one thing I felt with Hail Caesars because like they're obviously playing on all sorts of people like <laughs> Lawrence Lorenz. Yeah, is, you know who he could be any number of people. I, yeah, that that was the one that I and no one is exactly a perfect right, fit. Right, but that, he's but the one the thing, that I couldn't you even. Take, you take a trope of this person, this person, this person. Combine was supposed them all to be together. Douglas Sirk, maybe, sort of, you know, maybe. Yeah, combine them all together yeah, and you get, you get this, Scarlett and it's Johansson, great. And that's, I like that the Coen more. brothers never do biopics. No, and when they do. Ostent, like they even lie about their movies being based on true stories yeah. when they're not. Like that's that is what makes them better than the song. And to be perfectly honest, I, as much as I love Helen Mirren and I really deeply do, yeah, yeah, I would rather see Tilda Swinton play the Hedda Hopper, the the gossip columnist, yeah, than Helen Mirren, yeah, because. Helen Mirren is great, and she does what she does excellently. But Tilda Swinton is going to claw your eyeballs out, like even when she's nice. Yeah, like she she has this subversive undercutting that Mirren doesn't. No, and, and that's why Helen Mirren is not in Coen Brother movies, and Tilda Swinton is. And it's just like you know they are this. It's it's the exact same part. In both movies, it's it's the gossip columnist yep. undermining Funny what's hats. going on. Funny hats, yeah. What's going on with the studio? And you know, one of them we are being told to take seriously, and I just can't. Even though I'm sure she probably had a great big hand in the blacklist at the time. And then we get a pair of Swintons who are just you know grabbing on to any little thing as it goes, and I, I buy that much more because I believe that that was kind of more of what the story was at the time. Deeply would have liked to have seen more Swinton in the movie. Sure. Did you, like I, I like pretty much everyone. I would yes. like to see a little more, but then that's the kind of the cardinal rule of entertainment, right? Like more keep Swinton. them wanting more. Yeah. Well, there's um, that too. Yeah. Um, no, there's there's I think that's that's the cool thing about that movie is that at the very least it makes you come away wanting to see so many more other movies, and that's a good thing. You know, like any movie that's that's self-contained and in its own little ecosystem, or just makes you dig into the rest of the franchise, like. You and I have had long conversations about the comic book movies. The one thing I will grant you that's a fault is they literally exist in a universe unto themselves. Right. You know, the closest thing that's ever come to that is I, you would come away from the second Captain America movie and you might want to watch Three Days of the Condor. But that's the only Right, right, because it's meta. It, it uh, yeah, is but like out of, out of, you know, 20-something Marvel movies and about a dozen DC movies, that's the only time. And the only other one I can come up with is The Dark Knight Makes Me Think of the Killing. That's about it. Right. Those because two, of the clown masks. Yeah, those two out of out of so many. That's the one thing I like about a movie like this is that it kind of it, it gets you hungry for other movies. If yeah. even if you don't completely dig it. Yeah, I, I think there will be watch, a lot of people who don't dig this movie. I, I can tell you I wanted to watch Three Days of the Contour while I was watching uh, <laughs> Captain, Captain America too. And like that was it. That was the last one. That was it. I'm out. Like, oh, that man. was the final and most people point to that one as being one of the better ones. That's and I'm I, like, I that's it. I, I, I'm really? done. Oh, I'm done. Man. No, but you saw Guardians after that. Yeah, because that's not in the 
yet. Um, that's one, that's separate, and I, I came to that one for James Gunn, who uh, I like. Okay. And somehow he managed to make a James Gunn movie, so, which none of the other directors. So you're gonna go to back do. for Guardians nope. two? I'm done. You're done. I'm done. Right. Because because now when they do it, it's gonna be fully. If it's separate and standalone, I'll watch it. But if okay. they've if they've merged it with everything else, okay. now, yeah. and in some ways, Hail Caesar has created the Thinkiverse, which is like it exists in the same timeline as Barton Fink. as Barton Fink. And in the publicity tour for Hail Caesar, the Coen Brothers were asked if they would ever make a sequel because they've never made a sequel. No. Um, and they said, well, the only like they'd never do Lebowski because that would be stupid. Yeah. They would never make a Jesus. The Bowler spinoff because no. that would be stupid. Yeah, um, and Even rightfully like, so. But Lewin Davis, I think, is almost begging for one. But, but, no, but, but no, but no, but they won't they, do they it. Won't. No, no, no. Yeah. But they said if we were to make one, they would make a sequel to Barton Fink, where he was a professor at Berkeley in the '60s. Awesome. And 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 I'm like, okay, continue the Finkiverse, but drop everything else. Nice. And and, they, and I'm sure when the Coen Brothers said that. That they were just pulling that reporter's line. Oh yeah, totally. that, it's not Lars von Trier when he when he comes up with some wacky crazy idea. Yeah. and that thing actually exists the, three years. Later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was you know it was like it, it was like it was either that or they go and say yeah we're gonna make blood simpler. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, um, well there we go. That is episode one hundred fifty two of the matinee cast. Um, you know we could be here. We could try and set a new record for a longer show. <laughs> and I know you could do it. Uh, your co-host holds that record now, by the way. When I got him on to talk oh, about yeah. uh, Force Awakens, new longest. I show. usually try to keep them tight when I'm on with you, to oh, so that you're, people you're can't say uh, that I okay, okay. stretch out the runtime. <laughs> um, come on back on Monday, February 22nd for episode 153. We might be discussing The Witch if I can get a guest who's seen it. Uh, but uh, if not, who knows? <laughs> I might have to go comic book movie and talk about Deadpool. Even oh, you really jumped the gun to. for me. I've seen The Witch. It's uh, actually, it's I know, fabulous. I know. Um, Kurt, of course, can be found on Row3.com and on Twitch.com. Um, are you writing anything this week that people can look forward to? You can read my review of Hail Caesar. Well, there we go. I don't write a lot of reviews outside no, of you've... the festival circuit, yeah, but there's yeah. certain directors that... I like their filmography, so I generally try and write a little bit, yep. uh, first impression-y kind of thing. And I did that in this case. Yeah. Yep. And if people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? They can find me at Triflick. Look for Kurt's uh, Instagram, too. There's a lot of good uh, food porn and a lot of, uh, a lot of you know, you're, you're a photographer. So a lot you, of my children. A lot of, lot of your, yeah, a lot of your family. The needs. one thing you almost never see in my photo feed is yep. me. Yeah, I I've firmly only, believe that the camera face is away from me. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. I, I you know I noticed when I was looking through my family photos a little while You're ago. You're not there. There's a mo- <laughs> there's a moment where there's a moment where I disappear and my father shows up. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. one <laughs> or the other. Right? Exactly. Um, my site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca/slash/podcasting. You can also find them on Stitcher Radio, Blueberry, Apple's podcast app, and Pocket Cast, and the iTunes Store. Everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on Hail Caesar or on any of those films that we talked about subsequently can be left in the comment section of the site. You can email ryan at thematinee.ca, Twitter, or I'm matinee underscore ca, or facebook.com slash darkmatinee. Any final thoughts, sir? I gotta pee. All right. I really gotta pee. <laughs> For Kurt, I'm Ryan. We'll see you at the matinee.